I'm all shaking right now. I can't tell if it's just because I'm freezing or because of the four cups of coffee or because I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> but uh, good morning, everyone. I'm glad to be here. I hope that you're glad to be here, too. This is a continuation of uh, a series that we started last year this week. Um, so if you missed that and you don't have your Bible with you, then you're kind of hooped. Um, and you're not going to know what we're talking about. I'm just joking with you. Um, last year, I think it's because my wife's Chinese and John knew that I wasn't going to leave the country. Um, I was speaking the week before Christmas as well, and here I am speaking the week before Christmas. Last year we talked about uh, the angel's appearance to Mary and how uh, Jesus was a fulfillment of all the different covenants that happened in the Old Testament. And this year I decided to go with, um, rather than Luke's account of the angel appearance to Mary, we'll go with Matthew's account of the angel appearance to Joseph. And so I'm just going to read from Matthew chapter 1. It starts off with a, uh, a genealogy. And I'm not going to bore you with all these names, but I will reference some of them a little bit later. But there's this uh, great little title in my Bible here. It says, The Birth of Jesus Christ. And um, we get these two accounts, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And they kind of, we piece together our understanding of, of the uh, events that happened before his birth, leading up to his birth, and then, of course, the birth and, and afterwards. And it and continues on from there. Um, but that's, this season is all about the coming of Christ and, and his birth. So, let me read this for us. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now remember that part. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let me pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for... Uh, the opportunity to be here together to sing praises and worship to you. Thank you for your word that is here for us to, to read, to hear, to understand. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. So long ago, in a, a world that was uh, very different than we see today, in a place that was very different than where we are today, Lord, I pray that the words that I speak and the thoughts that they provoke in me and in the rest of us would be acceptable in your, in your sight. Lord, I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit now, that my words would not be mine, 
that we would learn, that I would learn. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you know, when we're singing a lot of different Christmas songs uh, around this time of year, songs like Silent Night, Holy Night, uh, Away in a Manger, I think, in my opinion, we've not only commercialized Christmas, but we've kind of romanticized Christmas. The birth of a baby is not a silent night, right? I've had the privilege of being at the birth of two of my children. The first one I was not allowed to be in because there was another woman giving birth to another child in the same room as my wife. Um, So I was outside the door, but I could still tell it wasn't very silent in there. And the idea of the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, doesn't make any sense to me. Because our firstborn cried for about 18 months straight. And uh, I just don't see how, how the authors of these songs wanted to romanticize it in this way. And I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, say that Jesus wasn't still holy and wasn't still perfect, but he was truly human at the same time as he was truly God. And if he was truly human, he was truly a baby. And um, even if he was the quiet, silent Savior as a child that didn't cry and and even when the cow can, in, the, in the barn next to him, and he's not doing it, no crying. Even if that was the case, you can imagine the rest of the sounds on that night. It wouldn't really be a silent night. And this is why they don't sell, you know, realistic nativity scenes at Walmart. Right? We don't see, you know, Mary exhausted, passed out because she just gave birth. Joseph with the head shepherd trying to figure out what to do with the umbilical cord. Maybe some cow patties in the ground. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but we really don't know a whole lot about that night. And so I want to kind of look at what it might have been like. Because this is the, the night, God with us, right? Emmanuel, God with us. And here Jesus comes from, from heaven to earth to show the way to be born, right, in this stable. And so what would that, what would that have been like? What was the stable really like? And we see these pictures, um, or we have these nativity scenes of this you know, open, open little toy thing with Mary and Joseph, and everyone's silently gathering around the baby Jesus, and everyone's got halos, and uh, maybe the wise men are there, the shepherds are there. But there's actually a little bit of history in, uh, in the first chapter of Matthew here, and I, I think it's important. And it's, it's not the main part of my message, but it really struck me as I was preparing here. Um, right before the, the verses that I read, there's this one verse that says, Thus, this is after the genealogies, before the angel appearing to Joseph. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, and 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Now, I don't know about your numerology, but that's not the important part to me. What's interesting is... is David here, then we got this exile in Babylon, then we have Christ. And if you notice, the place where Jesus was born, this inn, this stable in the inn, was in Bethlehem. And this is not the first time that we encounter Bethlehem in the Bible. In fact, in the genealogy here, you can find some names of people who were already there. Right? Remember when Joshua conquered Jericho, the walls came down, 
And there was one person and her family that were saved. They were spared from the destruction that was Rahab. Now Rahab married one of the spies. His name was Salmon. I don't know why his name was Salmon. It's a bit of a weird name. But Salmon and Rahab had a son. Who knows their son's name? You didn't bring your Bibles. May God have mercy on your soul. It's right here. <laughs> it's right here. The father of Salmon. Uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz. So Salmon and Rahab had this, had this little boy, Boaz. And from what we know, Boaz must have moved to Bethlehem at some point because that's where he married Ruth. And Ruth was a Gentile. And Ruth, it just so happens, was the great-grandmother of David who was also from Bethlehem, right? Remember the prophecy, in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So we've got Boaz, we've got Ruth, who is the great-grandmother of David, and David's here in Bethlehem. Now later on, um, there's this, I mean, I'm not going to go through the whole biblical history again, but later on there's this great uh, story where Absalom, one of David's sons, uh, just wants to murder his dad. And David is fleeing from his son. And during that time, there's a time where there's someone hiding David, helping to hide David. And that man gives his son to David to go with him back to Jerusalem. That man's son was named Kimham. And David made a promise and covenant with his father. He said, I will be good to him. I will give him what he needs. And what we find out later on, a really obscure reference, in the exile... When the people of God are running away from Egypt, they go to a place called Gerath Kimham, near Bethlehem. And it's entirely possible that David gave part of his Bethlehem inheritance to this man named Kimham, who then had an inn, because Gerath Kimham means the dwelling of Kimham. And this is years later, right? The dwelling of Kimham. And so, it doesn't say this in the Bible. But it's not unreasonable to assume that because most small towns in Israel during that time were probably only had one in. So it's entirely possible that it was the generosity of David, the first king of Israel, given to Kimham, that this inn was there, and there we have the birth of Christ. There's a bit of history, and this is, a lot of this is found in that genealogy right before this passage. What kind of animals would have been in the, in the stable? Well, we have all these Christmas carols, and we know that the ox and the donkey were probably there, not from the Christmas carols, but because of history. They were already domesticated at that time. There were, there were uh, domesticated cows, domesticated sheep, pigs, camels, donkeys. Probably weren't any pigs there because the Jews didn't eat pork. It was not kosher. But here we have probably cows, probably camels. The sheep were probably being shepherded by the shepherds, and they weren't probably in the actual stable. A typical inn or house with a stable in that time in small towns like Bethlehem, it would usually have the, the dwelling upstairs where the people would live, and then downstairs there would be the stable. And it had a wall in the stable that had little windows that were uh, low to the ground. And that's where the animals would stick their heads in. On the other side of the wall would be the feed, right? They would give the animals the food. 
And then in the other side of the wall here, there's probably where the, the food was stored. And that's likely where the innkeeper gave Mary and Joseph permission to stay for the night. If you think about that, we, we know that it wasn't December 25th, but it was in the winter. And if you've never been in the Middle East in the winter, it's not freezing like it is here in Beijing. I'm freezing today. Um, but it's cold. And one of the reasons, um, one of the things that cold does is it makes animals' fur grow longer, right? Animals shed their fur in the spring, but they have longer fur. And there's probably lice, probably lice on the cows, on the camels, and they stink. There's probably stable flies. It probably was a, not, not quite as romanticized as, as most of the stories that we see. And yet it was Jesus choosing to come into that situation. And it's, it's really not the, the typical uh, picture that you have in your head of the entry of a king, let alone a god. I think it's important for us to remember, right, the height from which he came, the glorious height as, as, as the king of the universe, the god of the universe that he chose to come down into this, into this stinky, probably muddy, loud stable where only a few shepherds came to welcome him. It's anything but majestic and peaceful. You know, I think about the entry of a god. I think about, um, you know, Thor and Odin in, in the movies. You know, the Bifrost opens up. Sorry, Angela, I don't know how to translate Bifrost. But, you know, slams into the ground and there's like flash of light. And these gods come out and they just conquer. You know, or I think of... Uh, Ares and Zeus and how they enter in the movies, these cinematic entries of gods and kings, and we, we don't see that here. Right? The second coming of Christ in Revelation is more like that. We see Jesus as the rider on the white horse, and he comes, and his, he's got fire in his eyes, and his tongue is like a sword, and it divides the soul and spirit. He doesn't choose that here. He doesn't choose that here. Who's this guy? Why is he talking about action movies instead of preparing the sermon with the, with the word of God? The point is that Jesus has humbled himself. As he talked about it in, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, it talks, Paul talks about Jesus humbling himself. And we don't really get the distance between those two points. Such a glorious height of heaven and holiness coming down to sinful man. And for me, I don't know about you, but for me, I miss it. I don't quite get it. I haven't quite grasped the distance between those two points. And often, I spend a lot of time thinking about the romanticized version, the peaceful version, the gift-giving version, even, even talking about Jesus and remembering that he came down as a baby and his humility, but, but it's just not enough. It's just not, it's not direct an understanding of what it means that he humbled himself, came from heaven, and humbled himself into this manger. And yet, he was given the name Emmanuel. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but... Um, we've all heard this before. Emmanuel is, is, is a word, God with us. 
im is actually the preposition with, and el is the word for, for God. And in the middle, we have this pronoun, right? With us, God. With us, God. And the way that he chose to come down and be with us in his humility, saying, setting aside his majesty, setting aside the way we would think about his holiness. And yet, and yet, he is holy and he chose to be with us in our sin, in our muck, in our noise, in our mess. When I was younger, I had a best friend named Kevin. And Kevin and I would spend virtually every day of the summer together. We would hang out all the time. And one of the things that we loved to do was go bike riding. I got a brand new mountain bike. Um, he had a mountain bike, and we would just go. And in my hometown, there was this river trail, you know, dirt paths going through the woods, and there's you know, rivers and creeks. And there was this one favorite part that we had. Um, it was a creek, pretty wide, not, not overly wide, but pretty wide. And on the one side, there was this kind of jutting out rock. And we could ride from the hill behind it and ride down quickly and hit that rock and jump over the creek onto the other side. The problem was that when we did that, if we wanted to come back home that day, <laughs> we either had to ride all the way around along, along further way or figure out how to get back across the creek. And we tried numerous times to figure out a way that we could get in the same path um, to get back across to where that rock was. The problem was that the other side of the creek was muddy. It was muddy, it was slippery, and when you got close to it, you didn't realize that, gosh, this, this side is actually pretty far from that side. And that side looks pretty far from this side. And so we would try to gather some chunks of sticks and wood and other rocks and things and, and build a ramp so that we could jump back to the other side. The problem was that the condition of the ground on this side of the creek wasn't solid. And the resources that we could gather on this side of the creek wouldn't get us there. And so what ended up happening was one day when we really tried hard to jump back to the other side, I can almost see this in a picture, me and Kevin and one of our friends, bike as hard as we could at that ramp that we had built. And one of three things happened. The first one was I broke the ramp because it wasn't made of good quality materials. The second one was my friend Kevin that was uh, trying to deal with the broken ramp and just got his bike stuck in the mud and couldn't make it the other side. And then the third one was our friend. And uh, he went as fast as he could go, jumped as far as he could go, but because of the slipperiness of the mud on this side of the creek, his bike flew out from underneath him, and his bike almost made it to the other side, but it actually smashed on the rock on the other side. And we realized that there is no foundation on this side of the creek. The quality of the ground was no good. All the resources we could gather were no good. On the other side of the creek, there's that rock, right? I think about the wise man built his house on the rock. The foolish man built his house on the sand. We couldn't build anything that would get us anywhere close to the other side. You could only come from that side to this side. You couldn't come from this side to that side. I'm sure most of you have seen a diagram at some point with a line up here. God is holy, and the line down here, man, is sinful, right? It reminds me of that creek. 
up here we've got this solid rock and God is holy. And down here man is sinful. And man tries all different kinds of ways to gather resources to try and bridge that gap to get from, from here up to there. And he can't do it. Sometimes it's philosophy. Sometimes it's religion. Sometimes it's good deeds. But we don't have the resources here to build anything that can get us across that bridge. And so when you see that picture of the cross, right, the cross spans the gap from God's holiness down to man's sinfulness. And it's the only way that God could be with us. And Jesus being called Emmanuel is really significant, but it's not new. When you think about from the very beginning, we see Adam is walking with God in the garden, right? Adam is with God. God was with Adam. This was the way it was intended. It was what God created Adam for, for fellowship, to be satisfied in him. And then one day Adam decided that he regarded equality with God, a thing to be grasped. And what did God do? He came down and asked the question, where are you, Adam? And the question wasn't for God. God knew exactly where Adam was, right? The question was for Adam to consider, where am I? I am not with God. And that has been the fallen condition of man from the first sin, from the creation to Christmas to the crucifixion. We realize that Jesus coming down to be with us in Christmas, the foundation of that was from above. There was no foundation that could have made things work here. And the cross, despite being dug into the ground and planted there, the cross was from the beginning of time. And the foundation of the cross was also from above. Otherwise, we'd never be able to walk across that bridge. We'd never be able to have faith in Christ, in his, in his birth, in his life, in his death and resurrection, to be able to have any kind of fellowship with God. You see, God has always been with us, but sometimes we are not with him. When Adam sinned, God wasn't disappointed. How many people here think that God's disappointed in you? Sometimes we feel like that. God would have to have expectations of you like that to be disappointed. Do you think God expected that you wouldn't sin? No. Sure, he's grieved. He has anger about our sin. But there was, he expected this to happen. I don't understand this, right? I don't understand why he even placed this tree of knowledge in the, the Garden of Eden. It's not like he put Adam and Eve in the garden and then this fellowship and God and Jesus are up in heaven and Adam sins and Jesus and God look at each other and say, uh-oh, now what? No. Adam sinned. This isn't in the Bible, but I can picture the father and the son looking at each other and saying, Ready? Ready. And the Father says, go. And Jesus says, I'll go. Yet God is angry at our sin. He, 
He can't be with our sin because he's holy. And his holiness, I think we underestimate it. It's not just that he's not sinful. It's not just that he can't be in the presence of our sin. You see, even the angels in the Bible who have not sinned have to cover their faces in the presence of God. Okay? So it's not just that he can't be with sin. It's that he's holy. He's set apart. He's above. He's unreachable. And yet he is with us. And so we underestimate his holiness. And we underestimate our own sin. A lot of us think, well, I'm a pretty good person. You know? Sure, there's, there's sins out there, but I'm, I haven't really done that many of them. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't really stolen anything. But if we take a, a genuine examination of the condition of, of us, condition of our sin, if we're really honest and think about the promises that you've broken, think about the people's hearts that you've broken, think about the people that you have used or abused, think about the things that you've thought in your head, you begin to realize that not only is God's holiness even higher, but my sinfulness is even lower. And that brings to mind just the amazingness that Emmanuel, God with us. You see, God absolutely is angry at our sin. I think a lot of us have it confused, and I hear this a lot. They talk about the God of the Old Testament being this angry God who's just vengeful and trying to take his vengeance out on the people of Israel or on the people that Israel is fighting against. And then Jesus comes along, and then we see the New Testament version of God, and he's different somehow. He's more mature. Or some people have this idea that God is is angry and, and spiteful against humanity, and Jesus comes and stands in the way. We've got it all wrong. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not God so hated the world that he murdered his only son. It's that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And all through the Old Testament, despite us seeing this righteous and angry God, he's not angry all the time. And he reminds the Israelites time and again, I am with you. I will not forsake you. And you see this time and again in the New Testament, Jesus talking about, I am with you. And I will not forsake you. You see, the idea of Emmanuel, God with us, didn't start at the birth of Christ. It was an idea that had its foundations in heaven since before creation. God with us. Matthew starts off his gospel with this idea of God with us. I want to ask you and ask myself today, am I with God? Do I know where I stand? If God asked me like he asked Adam, Adam, where are you? Ian, where are you? Rick, where are you? Martin, where are you? Do we have to answer, I saw that I was naked. I ran away from you. Or do we recognize that God is with us and he is the only way to overcome the sin that we had? 
We cannot clothe our nakedness. The distance between those two points, between the holiness and our sinfulness, is insurmountable, except for the foundation from above and the cross. And when you have that drawing, right, the lines, and you think about, when you examine a little bit closer, just like the, the, the gap across that creek, the closer you get, the more you realize that this, this is far from there, and that's far from here. And yet the cross still spans that. And the more you understand the holiness of God, the more you understand the sinfulness of man, the larger you realize that cross was. Because the cross definitely spans that gap. And so that is the message of God with us, is that Jesus came down into our sin, into our life, into our world, into our suffering, into all of these things, and he is with us. And I ask myself again, am I with him? Because he's never left. This is the greatest Christmas present ever. Am I with him? There's nothing I can do other than accept this gift of Emmanuel, of God with us. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, these are Jesus' final words. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you believe that? Does that change the way you live your life? Does that change the way you celebrate Christmas? Does that change the way you think about yourself? Does it change the way you think about God? Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And church, I think about this Christmas, I think about the very best gift that we can receive. Even though it's better to give than to receive, it is better to receive Jesus with us than to receive anything else. And it is better to receive Jesus than it is to give anything else. But that we give our life to him because he has given it for us. You see, Jesus is the only one that has ever met the plumb line that God has set, the plumb line of righteousness that's referred to in the Old Testament many times. Jesus is the only one who is part of the bloodline of man and of God. Jesus is the only one who is our lifeline, and we are dead without him, face down, in the water, lungs full of water, and he reaches down into the muck, and he breathes into us the breath of life. Jesus is the only one, and he is the bottom line. If we don't accept him, we have nothing. And so this Christmas, if you don't know him, I urge you, to be with him because he is with you. All we need to do is accept him. And that is the best gift that you can have this Christmas. And if you already know God, if you are already part of his kingdom, if you have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that he is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, what better gift could you give this Christmas than to share that with people that you know that don't know him, that aren't aware of his presence here, that aren't aware of his presence in their life, of his desire to have them turn and be with him because he's with them. So as I think about things you can do with your, your time over Christmas, share 
the message of Emmanuel with your friends, with your family. Maybe you know some missionaries here at church. We have people that we send over to lots of different other places, and they need support, they need prayer. That would be a great Christmas gift, to share the good news of Emmanuel with people in, in Egypt or Pakistan or other places here in town. The best gift that anyone can ever get is Emmanuel, God with us. And so, let me pray. Dear Jesus, thank you that you are Emmanuel. You are with us. I thank you that you stepped down from the heights of heaven, from your holiness, from your your perfect home, and you humbled yourself. Even though you deserve all the majesty, all the glory, everything that is there, you came down to to the muck, to the sin, to the filth. And Jesus, we want to recognize that that you're holier than we think, and we're more sinful than we think, and yet your cross is enough. If we would only receive you. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that has not received you, that they would hear, that they would know, that they would recognize their need for you and turn to you. Lord, I pray for myself and all my brothers and sisters here who know you and who have received you that we would look a little bit closer at that gap and see the, the size of the cross and realize the greatest gift that we've received. I pray that you would bless us today. Help us to keep you in mind during this Christmas season. Help us to be with you because you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen.